Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, der frühe Vogel bekommt den Würm, der zweite Maus den Käse. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox. As ever, how are you, Simon? I'm doing well, oh, thanks, man. high-pitched, high-pitched question. <laughs> how, are you? how are you, Simon? <laughs> how are you, Simon? How are you, Simon? Yeah, yeah, all good, all good in the suburban hood. And um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that quote. I, I guess my question is, do you have any idea who said that? They said it in English, if that helps. Oh, man, like you've translated it. Is yeah. it like that Francis Bacon one from a few weeks ago? Um, so is it an English speaker? It is an English speaker. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'll be honest, that's I have just no down to one billion options. There is a little bit of folksy wisdom in there. That's mm-hmm. why I was probably confused. Yeah. Folksy wisdom and, and Willie Nelson do go hand in hand. And of course, the other thing that Willie Nelson loves more than folksy wisdom, we're going to talk about later in the episode. And it's not playing guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly. Anyway, stop teasing the audience, Simon. Look at this. Terrible work. Episode 49, I'm like, I'm setting things up, building suspense. <laughs> We've become really good at this. Um, Learning. <laughs> I heard on the grapevine that you might have been doing some kind of roast dinner yesterday. And as a aficionado of a roast dinner, I needed to tell me all the details because I've not made one yet. So how'd it go? It went really well. I was really, really happy. And there were lots of happy, crunchy noises. Now that autumn and almost winter is upon us, I've been doing a lot more roast potatoes. And this is something that my wife is having very much forced on her because every now and again, I just have a hunger for a roasty. Oh, boo-hoo, boo-hoo, you're forcing your wife to eat roast potatoes. (laughs) Oh, what a, what a torture. (laughs) She's so brave. She's so brave. (laughs) It's a very valiant thing that she does for me. Selfless, you might say. (laughs) And as you well know, a roast potato is, is a sacred thing back home. It really is. For the first time, we had agreed that we were going to have some people over. Uh, we tested beforehand to make sure that it was safe in the face of pretty daunting COVID numbers here in Bayern. Yeah, I think that's the sensible thing to do in this situation is to just be be cautious, I think, is the best thing to do. Exactly, exactly. One of them is a vegetarian, and so that's sort of threw me off my game a little bit because I'm not really much of a vegetarian cook. I got no problem accommodating people and I'm happy to do it, but I don't have a, a strong repertoire in these things. I was curious because you said when I asked you what you were making special for the guest who was a vegetarian, you just looked at me and went, vegetables? <laughs> and I was like, not even like a nut roast? Nope. Just some lovely vegetables. You did have a fine selection of vegetables, though, to give you credit. Yeah, I'll now, now sort of reveal what I what I did to these veggies to pimp them right up. So I did my roast potatoes, and of course, to do a, the, a correct roast potato, you have to parboil the potatoes, and then you have to fluff them up, and then you cover them a little bit of flour and spices, and then you bake them for a, uh, three quarters of an hour or thereabouts uh, in oil, butter, goose fat, whatever your game is. Lovely. I'm using olive oil at the moment because... I'm trying to be healthy. It's uh, the goose fat. As soon as you said goose fat, my brain just went, hmm, could eat some of that. It is the way to do it, for sure. Uh, but it is the most expensive and the least healthy. So that's 
two pretty good reasons to not do it on the regular at least and then i communicated with uh, the meat eater that joined us asked what he'd be interested in having and i ended up doing a pork loin mm. which is just lovely pork loin is really easy you just season it and it cooks really quickly it's not um, a four hour slow thing to do so that was nice i did it in a hot cajun spice mix that was nice with some roasted oh, wow. onions that does sound um, that's it was really, I like really that good. idea of putting something because usually it's just a s- sort of salt and pepper affair if you make roast beef. But I hadn't thought about like spicing it up. I suppose though, because the palate of my, certainly my German family, but I think it's a, a German. Well, it's a generalization, but it's my experience. A lot of Germans don't like vast amounts of spices on on their food. But I like that idea. Yeah, I mean, I, th- there is that running joke that a German will show you their, their, their spices and it's just salt and pepper. Someone said butter <laughs> the other day and I kind of laughed and then I had dinner last night and my wife had made pork and she had the, the kreuter butter out. I said, like, oh yeah, that is a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kreuter butter. I wouldn't think of putting, but they, um, do that in America, right? They put butter on steaks and stuff. I wouldn't yeah, yeah. have thought of putting butter on it. So I don't think it's particularly weird, but it's not the most flavorful of no. the, the spices you could put on there. The, the number one herb in Germany is petersilia, and it is is on everything, which, yeah, if you're German, you love petersilia. It's as simple as that, and it's a mm. flavor that can be a little bit a little bit omnipresent if you're mm. not German. Like, everything you buy has that tang to it, and the problem I have as well is with fish. It's always dill, mm. and I'm not a huge dill fan, but it's sort of that Scandinavian influence seems to have got to all yeah. the fish dishes. But back to my roast, I did yeah did the port line then. I did some uh, bushbornen, which I guess we would call runner beans. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, they at least look like run, runner beans. Literally beans growing on bushes. Yeah, I think I assume. Yeah, that's, that's how it sounds at least. I love German so much. <laughs> and then I did some broccoli, and I served that with goat's cheese. That that went really well. That was a bit of a last minute. Like, look oh, at I you, man! On this. What is this? Yeah. This fine culinary skills that you're like putting out there. Wow! No, it, I wouldn't call it fine culinary skills. It's opening the door, and be like, oh, I've got goat's cheese. That will work. <laughs> that's even better. You make yeah. it sound like that's a bad thing. The spontaneity of it. Mm. I'm impressed. That's that's how I roll. I don't do recipes at all. And then I did pastinaken, uh, which is parsnips for the English people out there. And I've learned something about pastinaken uh, mm. or parsnips because I went to uh, my local raver and I saw what I thought was pastinaken, picked them up, put them in my basket, got them home, put them in the fridge and forgot about them. I then went shopping the next day and saw more better looking parsnips. I was like, I'm having them as well. And I got home to prep them start peeling them and i was like these aren't the same and so it turns out in germany there is a thing called petersilienwurzel right yes i do know this yes they look identical mm-hmm. and I, I can report back they taste pretty much identical i don't think really? anyone could identify which was which i prepped them exactly the same way apparently reading up on it parsnips have an earthier taste uh, that seems to be the difference but i did them honey glazed yeah that's the way always the way honey is yeah. the, a good option on those ones i think olive oil salt and pepper is also good for for pastinac and for parsnips but uh, the honey glaze is, is really a recommended uh, move because then you get the sort of the, the crunchy corners and the caramelized flavor and then the, the sort of soft mm. middle is lovely and then uh the the vegetarian guest bought some paxo sage and onion stuffing that's something you wouldn't find on a a German supermarket shelf. That was very much the sentiment. This is like, okay, the Brits are eating together. Let's eat some British versions. How do you? How would you describe Paxo to people? Because it's it's a replication of the stuff you'd put inside a, a chicken or a turkey, right? It's, it's, yeah, that's what it's meant to be. It's. I mean, I, I I guess if I had to sell it to a German, I'd be like, it's a breadcrumb dumpling 
seasoned. Yeah, that's solid. <laughs> I think that that portrays what it is. Yeah, and yeah, you can do all sorts of different seasoning blends, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful addition to a to a, as I say a poultry. Uh, roast normally uh, geflügel uh, what's best with that I think you can put Paxo goes with that you can they do different flavours to to match the meat etc and the final thing I had was I had the last bit of my Bisto gravy um, special used as well and then the the, the killer blow of the guests they also brought an apple crumble Uh, so we had apple crumble and custard for dessert so I was very 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 British you've got a very British angle there well yeah at the end we all stood up and and sung God Save the Queen (laughs) (laughs) Faced west Waving a little Union Jack flags. Exactly. <laughs> I've saluted. Yeah. It's the only way to end a proper a proper roast dinner is is the official singing of the national anthem. <laughs> You're talking about sort of roast dinners and Sunday dinners, and I'm actually I'm going for well, I'm not going, but essentially I'm going to have my German equivalent. It's one of my favourite things. We did it last year. We did it a couple of years ago before that. It's St. Martin's Day coming up. Mm-hmm. And it's traditional on St. Martin's Day, at least in Bavaria, to eat goose. And so we're yeah. going to go pick up a takeaway because I think the restaurant's not going to open because of the current status of the corona numbers, or at least we don't want to sit in a restaurant as mm-hmm. as this is happening. And it's so good. I can't even tell you how good it is. It just, it's got this, it's the goose is, it's, it's like cooked so well, right? But it comes with this like, breadcrumb topping that's like it's fried or something i have no idea how they make it and you can only get it once a year and it's like do you know when people travel the country for the mcrib (laughs) mcrib from mcdonald's it's like mcrib time it's kind of like that for me it's like oh it's say martin's day and i don't really give a monkeys about the sort of religious element all i know is nick's gonna get some goose that's (laughs) that's all i'm worried about and then I'm going to hopefully try and backwards engineer or reverse engineer the uh, whatever it is this topping is. I don't know what it is. I think it's a breadcrumbs. I have no idea. It's okay. so it's so good. What what's funny is it's kind of the same thing. I think people in that area have been eating for St Martin's Day for mm-hmm. I would I would hazard a guess it's like centuries almost. And when you talk about Sunday dinners or roast dinners in Britain, there's a lot of customization or family preference that's included it becomes quite a instead of a regional thing it can be like hyper specific to a family like you were talking Mm -hmm. about putting honey on parsnips or something or like putting something on the meat so like chili and stuff like they would never really do that here i doubt you'd go to a restaurant and there's only a few that i've been to where there would be they would do something properly wild with Mm. the traditional elements there's a really good restaurant in nuremberg that does that We've been there a couple of times. They take traditional recipes and mix them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did I have? I had cordon bleu, but it was mixed with this sort of Turkish sauce. So okay. it made it spicy and it made the cordon bleu into like a... It was just amazing. It just tasted amazing. It's like all the things you want. Do you know when you eat some German dishes and you're like, I wish this was spicy? That's yeah. the kind of place that would be like, let's stick some chilies in this and see what happens. <laughs> It's so good. And and I, I like it when they try that stuff. But I, equally, I like it when you get sort of a really well done Jäger schnitzel or something like mm-hmm. that or, or something that's really traditional. But they're not, they're not experimenting so much. With no, it's, it's, it's not viewed with the same sort of joy as, as it is in other countries. There, do, you think it's, do you think it's that? I, <laughs> I thought it was reverence. It was like reverence for the recipe. Do you think it's like a lack of, a lack of, a lack of joy? <laughs> I think sometimes, yeah. 
I mean, there are a lot of bad restaurants that do bad food and they oh, yeah. do it that's sure, because that's sure. the way it's always been. And that's a bullshit excuse to sell mm. loads and loads of subpar food. And yeah, I, I would say that the restaurant industry in Germany is, is definitely room for improvement. I think when you compare it to other places that I've lived, it's one of the worst because there are a lot of bad places selling something that you think, okay, that I know is going to be fine. And then it's not. It's just a kind of disappointing version of what it should be. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because I, I do eat it all. I never send it back. Yeah, yeah. But um, the variety is lacking sometimes. And the, I mean, we've spoken about this before, the integrity to international cuisine is mm. often an issue. This is the one thing that I'm jealous of when I'm reading Berlin Twitter. <laughs> People are like, oh, this restaurant's amazing. Got to go here. And it's like, okay, yeah my options especially now i live in the suburbs locally my choice of restaurants are very limited uh, unless i want to go for scheufele every single day which i'm fine yes yeah. down i'm down for that well it fluctuates cause i've complained before that you can't get certain traditional dishes just delivered to you which i, I still find that mm. really bizarre but regardless like that's that's one one side of it but i kind of i fluctuate i do appreciate well-made traditional at least traditional bavarian food or regional specialities mm -hmm. that are really just well made and that's what you're looking for and there is a lot of dross out there that's for sure in the city in cities you find that a lot more what i found mm. is you move out of cities and you go to sort of villages around at least around this area you can come across some real diamonds in the rough what you really want is a, a wirtschaft that has at least been around mm. for 70 odd years or 80 odd years and the people who are working there all kind of look the same because they're all from the same family that's what you want <laughs> and every time i've been to one of them where it's like oh they're all related or like my wife's family know them it's always good it's yeah. always solid yeah, yeah. but then i think i've been to places where where you've you've stopped in and it looks like it's, and it's just standard it doesn't have any flair that's mm. the thing that you're, you're always looking out for is is this sort of a tourist trap or is this a place where a tourist would never even find it because it wouldn't even be anywhere near this area. Yeah, there's no public transport nearby. Mm. But at the same time, like once you move out of the city, you can enter territory of like slightly more intimidating customer service. <laughs> in, in Nuremberg, the customer service is is not reliable. Like you can get a bad waiter or waitress in any restaurant in that city as well. There is at least an understanding in those kinds of restaurants in the city that you might need a second or have things explained to you. The last time I went to a local restaurant like Bavarian Food, I definitely felt pressured to like mm. perform <laughs> as well as I could with my German ordering. Uh, I didn't want to stand out. And yeah, she was gruff and unpleasant and uh, not very nice. And I still tipped her because... Because that's I'm what you do. Painfully British. <laughs> yeah. I, again though i think and i hate to put that stereotype on nuremberg because nuremberg has that stereotype of people being quite antisocial, or at least not enjoying the company of people that don't know whereas around around here the this this the swabians or the swabians are a little bit a little bit more relaxed i always feel like most of the time people are nicer here than in certainly in the, in the center of nuremberg i've had some pretty poor experiences mm. we're just people in general just being ourselves <laughs> <laughs> but um i think it i think it's it's do you know we've talked about geordies how geordies have a stereotype of not wearing jackets and it's mm -hmm. sort of self-fulfilling prophecy yeah because the more you sort of celebrate that aspect of the culture the more blokes will not wear coats because they feel like mm -hmm. that's what they have to do I wonder yeah. if it's the same for Nuremberg that you get more sort of surliness. It's never like, I never feel like I'm being sort of abused or anything. If it happened in the bakery yesterday, I 
I was coming back from yours and the um <laughs> woman behind the counter and it's like is it is this impolite or is it not the, the the gentleman before me was getting served and he was clearly a bit older and he was probably deaf at least he couldn't hear and the woman <laughs> the the woman said like it's 5 euros or something and the guy went sorry and she went it's 5 euros <laughs> Like really aggressively, and I was like, "Whoa!" Like enough to make me like recoil. <laughs> that's, like, that's so aggressive. But like, no one batted an eyelid, so you just assume like, "Oh, well, that's just the way it is," you know. She was just matter of factly telling him loudly in a direct and clear way that it was five euros. Mm. But you just don't know. I've never seen that happen here. <laughs> yeah, I've not had that. I mean, to be honest, you're right. Surly is probably the right word. Like, it's not aggressive. Mm. bad customer service it's not being rude to the customer it's just not being <laughs> it's not giving a shit <laughs> yeah it's like i'm gonna take your order and then i'm gonna go goodbye yeah 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 exactly and here's your food goodbye that's the end of our transaction exactly but the one time <laughs> we did have a, a totally bizarre interaction was actually it was a um a local asian restaurant that was very very nice and it was beautifully renovated really nice interior and it had been taken over by a new owner. So we're like, oh, we're going to try it out, see what it's like. And we got there, and we were met by the owner who sat us down. And she was very engaging, very friendly, very full-on. And we were all a bit like, oh, okay, that's, that's a bit much, a bit more than normal. And then she came over to the table and asked for a drinks order. And she was standing uh, sort of near the other male of the group, and he ordered his drink. And she was like, no, 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 women first. And he was like, oh, okay. Like, you were looking at me, um, but fine. <laughs> and so then the ladies both ordered. And then he, and she went back to him, and she was like, now, now you can order. And he ordered um, a Kohlerweizen, uh, which is a beer mixed with Coke. Yeah. And then she was like, so a Kohler und Weizen, one, one and one. And he's like, no, no, a Kohler Weizen, zusammen, together. And she's like, okay, so a Coke and a, and a Weizen. He's like, no. <laughs> the call of ice and together and she's like okay and then she looked at me and i was just like <laughs> totally shitting myself and like i need to get this order right and i got it and she didn't say anything i was like yes total victory she doesn't know anything about me i didn't get reprimanded and then she of course brought over two drinks for him a cola and a vitamin himself and at the end of the uh, dinner we were paying the bill and we wanted to split it because it was me and my wife and another couple with us mm-hmm. and then she got a bit upset about this prospect and that is quite common that people are like oh now i have to split this bill and instead of just doing that she asked my friend daniel to move and then she sat down at the table with us and started doing the maths but that's quite normal that's quite normal they do i see that a lot where they sit down next to you like i kind of do you not do you not do you not like that that especially if you've been confrontational about like the rules of oh yeah she told me off for putting my hat on on the on the chair i don't know where i was supposed to put it on the floor i guess but we'd all been reprimanded at different points throughout the evening uh and so yeah her just Uh being like oh i'll just sit down with you it's like you've been telling us off for poor behavior and now you just like sit down at a table and then you're going to take our bill and then she charged us all wrong numbers as well so we had to go back and get refunds i guess that, that it's unacceptable if you're getting charged mm. the wrong amount of money for things but I, I love it when bar staff or wait staff do the maths in front of you because i'm so <laughs> bad at maths that i just love watching them do it they're just like doing like 
long division and everything right in front of you and stuff. Love that stuff. And I don't really mind it when they sit down. I, 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 I'd expect that no, more than like anything else. At you don't like at least be nice and then you can sit down. Exactly. Like if if you've been friendly to us, <laughs> then it's not a problem. But when you chastised fifty percent of the table, it's like no, this is not what you what we want from you right now. What I what I prefer now. I mean, you like people, seeing people do maths. I prefer going into a place where I see that the people the staff members have like tablets where they can do it all electronically that fills me with much more really? satisfaction oh yeah i love that it's like i'm it's 2021 finally in germany maybe i'm regressing maybe i've maybe i'm going native maybe that's the problem i'm like i want less of that if anything but i was thinking as well the first village we lived in near nuremberg we, we met this uh, waitress in a bar um, and we sort of got to know her because we went to the bar a few times. I always got the feeling she hated us. And like, I never said anything. And she would just have these conversations. And I didn't know any German, but the tone of her voice sounded really aggro. And my wife just sounded like really sort of pleasant. Like, after a few times, I was like, I don't know why she doesn't like us. And she said, like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, she just doesn't seem to like us. And she's, my wife was like, oh, she just said, like, we're, we're two of her favorite customers. <laughs> and I just did the tone of voice and the sort of, or the mannerisms were so alien. And it just suggested, like, this person hates us. But actually, mm. I just totally misread it. So I think, I'm, I'm not saying this is what's happened in your case, because it sounds like this service staff, service member. She was power tripping as the owner. She was potentially really enjoying yeah. the, the ramp and soul. <laughs> Uh, element she was really like this is my business <laughs> maybe but maybe it was like a theme restaurant and the theme was i don't know what's it like to eat in a dictatorship or something <laughs> no well, I, mean, idea. I checked the reviews later on that day and there were a lot <laughs> a lot like that people being like she told us off for using our phones she, she told me i needed to flirt with my wife more <laughs> things like that like people on google were just like not happy uh, needless to say she is no longer the owner of that, that restaurant it's how many like, restaurants it. are going to give you like life advice like that it's really good just get off your phones flirt with your wife pull your trousers up <laughs> get her drunk come on <laughs> what are you doing man yeah love it so regular listeners will know that we love football we are football fans. How, how, how unusual it is no, for English men to want to talk about football on that podcast. We're not just going to talk about how much we love our teams, although I am going to ask Nick a couple of questions about how he feels about the, the new unfolding events, bright future shining on the hill of St. James's Park. But what we wanted to talk about was one of the huge differences between uh, English football, the Premier League especially, and German football. And we have a quote to kick us off. Uh, from the uh, Bayern Munich president, Uli Hoeneß, and he says, quote, we could charge more than £104. Uh, we've converted it into pounds for some reason here. Uh, if it was £300, we'd get £2 million more in income. But what's £2 million to us? We do not think the fans are like cows who you milk. Football has got to be for everybody, end quote. So this is, of course, Uli talking about the cost of a season ticket at Bayern Munich. Bayern are the biggest club in Germany by quite some distance in terms of on-the-pitch success, revenues, uh, supporter recognition, brand recognition around the world. They are massive in a way that most clubs can't really compete with. And so, yeah, it's quite nice. It's very refreshing, especially as English football fans, to hear someone of financial influence within the club not trying to rob the fans blind because that's what we've got used to in the UK. So I guess before we go any further, Nick... 
now your club is the richest on the planet, are you now worried that your fans are going to become cash cows to be milked? How much revenue do they expect out of fans? I think Newcastle fans buy a lot more merchandise and more mm-hmm. likely to buy a lot more merchandise. They're quite fanatical in that sense. But... I'm not sure how much like the cu- the club relies on that kind of revenue. Se- like season ticket sales, I guess ticket sales less and less. I think I don't know. I, 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 you see, you've seen stuff at other clubs where um, Arsenal or Liverpool famously raising ticket prices for certain clubs. It's because they've paid for new stadiums or mm-hmm. they've got a certain amount of debt. I think it's potentially like it could happen. I think Man City have raised their ticket prices and they're the, the best example of a club that's been taken over by incredibly wealthy owners and have changed mm-hmm. the club entirely from what it was. And I'm expecting some kind of similar trajectory for Newcastle. So whether I imagine the more successful they get, the higher the ticket prices will be the better the facilities mm-hmm. will get. Like the facilities of St. James's Park. When you look at it, when you're watching a match, it looks really good. But behind that, it's still a bit rickety and a little bit. If you go inside the stadium, it's it's not very plush or anything like that. I imagine your team, Tottenham Hotspur, their stadium is a lot more it's sort of it's clean and crisp and well-maintained. <laughs> well, it's, it's brand new and it costs a billion pounds. But it is now being talked about in the realm of the best stadiums on the planet and of course that's that's lovely and it is it's a beautiful coliseum for football the new structure of the stands is, is stunning and really is designed for the, a lot of fans mm. to get really good views of course this is what the stadium is for it is for the fans uh, yeah really but i mean it's interesting to talk about training grounds as well and of course that's, that's a big part and clubs spend millions and millions on that as well and this is one area where Newcastle looks like it's still playing in the 1980s like the training facilities it's so bad looking the training grounds where I used to do my um, sports classes and PE classes really yeah yeah there used to be like a I can't remember what it was it was sort of a, a sports club it had like rugby pitches and football pitches and so that was that was where we did PE, basically, yeah. I mean, this speaks to what makes Newcastle United an unusual and a special club. That connection with the local community is unusual. And because Newcastle is it's a one-club city and it is such a key part of the identity, it's, it's totally different from, from a lot of other places on earth uh, in terms of the fanaticism. And as you say, Newcastle fans spend more per fan on on merchandise than mm. any other club in the UK. As the former owners learned, it's a product, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, so it is a product, and I think part of that product is having a stadium full of fans. Because even living in Germany, a lot of people will say how the, fa- the English fans are the best, or they'll talk about how the noise levels and things like that, or they'll aspire or attempt to replicate a lot of what you see on the Premier League in in the Bundesliga with regards to fans and and, and vice versa like the there's a lot more fan orchestration or f- fan mm-hmm. banners and flags and stuff at the start yeah, of games so, yeah, yeah the choreography and and I think that's coming from the Bundesliga back so it's interesting that now the the, the sort of fan element is, is is taken a lot from the English fans and then created this thing that now English fans are taken from Germany. So there's that dynamic. There isn't really a club in, in the Premier League that has a relationship with the fans that's anything close to any major Bundesliga team in terms of no. choreography, uh, singing, chanting. I think the, the closest we have is Crystal Palace. Yeah, yeah. We do have 
a really rowdy corner that is exclusively for what Germany would call ultras. But of course, a lot of, especially Premier League clubs, have policed away what would be called hooligans or ultras, depending on your viewpoints. Mm. And so like hardcore fans have have been banned in a lot of cases. And so it's taken away a little bit in terms of that stuff. Well, you were talking about ticket prices and that was something that I mm-hmm. think teams like Manchester Manchester United thing, are criticised yeah. about this all the time, that their stadium's like soulless in comparison to like a palace or something like that. And a lot of the time the blame the blame lands on tourists who turn up and mm-hmm. oh, they don't know the chance. And you're talking about the choreography, I think, and the connection with the team, I can only speak for Newcastle, but the, for a long time, there was a group called War Flags and they were doing these massive banners and you might have seen a few of them that have been put mm-hmm. on in the Gallagher end. And they've now renewed, because they stopped doing them after I think Steve Bruce took over, it's two years ago. Mm-hmm. And now they've come back and they've got a very good connection with the, the hierarchy of the club now. And so I expect you to, you're going to see a lot more of that and a lot more promotion of it because it, I think, yeah, that's that's part of this whole sports washing thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, don't yeah. don't think about the fact that we're owned by a terrifying regime. Look at <laughs> look at the Newcastle fans; they're singing. And, yeah. But I wanted to go back to the the original quote by Uli Hoeneß, mm-hmm. and I think it would be unjust of us not to mention like Uli Hoeneß's background in the fact that he's that's fair. Yeah. Well, he's well, he. I've got issues with Uli Hoeneß because, and I'm issues with Bayern because he. He went to prison for tax evasion because mm-hmm. he was hiding money in a Swiss bank account. And then he was welcomed back like a returning hero after he was released. Yeah. I found that quite distasteful. But I find Early Hearnest quite a disingenuous bloke anyway. I wonder if he'd be so, so chipper about uh, the ticket prices and how his connections with the fans and all of that stuff if there was two highly competitive teams coming up behind Bayern Munich. Yeah. I wonder. I wondered how, he, and I, and I wonder also if how he'd feel about that if there was challenges to the amount of money that Bayern gets through TV rights. Because currently, mm-hmm. I'm looking at the TV revenue twenty for twenty twenty two twenty twenty three. They're projected to make ninety seven million uh, ninety seven uh, million out of the TV rights for that season, mm-hmm. and the next closest team's Borussia Dortmund with eighty three million. And I wonder mm-hmm. if if teams in the Bundesliga were more sort of aggressive about getting TV money. I know Bayern's the biggest draw because they're the biggest team and the biggest team internationally. But I wonder if he'd be so like, oh yeah, it's great. We could do it because mm-hmm. we love the fans. I always feel it's a little bit like, yeah. I know the fan, you. I mean, you've been to more football games than I have and the fan experience is certainly different. But I do feel like he's not really, he's not really got a reason to, not to say that. Because there's no no one who comes close to the amount of money and amount of success that Bayern Munich has. Yeah, it's it's a really really valid point. Uli Hoeneß is not a particularly aspirational person when it comes to sort of the ethics of business and the like. And yeah, there are many many reports of his behaviour being subpar. And by preaching this way about supporting the fans, it allows more shit to be swept under the rug. If you're charging Premier League prices for tickets, then the fan experience and expectation is a lot, lot higher. Whereas, yeah, if you get a cheap season ticket, you're just happy to have a cheap season ticket. Mm. And you only have to look across to the UK and be like, look how much they're being ripped off. And again, that gives you a nice warm, fuzzy feeling about the fact that you get to watch a club that is huge 
comparatively huge to any English club and you're sort of making money in comparison to some of your Premier League fans who are being robbed blind yeah. by a lot of the bigger clubs. The prices are insane. Well, let's let's move on to that. You've got you've yeah. got some interesting information for us. So we've got a price comparison between the price of season tickets at Bundesliga clubs versus the price of season tickets at English Premier League clubs. And it is quite shocking when you see the details. So Simon, you've got the stats. You're the stats man. Take us through. We'll start in the Premier League because that's where that's where the shocking information really is. And season tickets of course they vary in price depending on the quality of your seats, the location of the stadium, etc. But the most expensive season ticket in the Premier League is at Arsenal. Uh, of course, the Emirates is a new stadium that, as you mentioned, has to be paid for. £2,000 plus is the, the cost of a season ticket there. Um, and you mentioned noise. And of course, Arsenal have been criticised a lot since they moved to the new stadium because Highbury, their previous stadium, was a classic English stadium. Beautiful place, loud and a real little cauldron in North London, as, as much as I hate. Arsenal but their new stadium has been criticized for being quiet and what they did is they piped in crowd noise through the speaker system there so if you are watching an Arsenal game on TV or in the stadium not all of the crowd noise is authentic for me that is one of the most damning indictments uh, of a stadium experience if it can't be loud enough so Arsenal number one number two is my club Tottenham um, 1895 pounds boo yeah boo indeed that is monstrously expensive and lots of fans uh, obviously criticize the cost of that but also the fact that Tottenham and their new stadium have moved in a new direction so there is an in-house brewery there is a cheese bar that has been lambasted all over uh, forums because it is pretty upper class to have a cheese bar <laughs> and so they've really shot for the stars and a high high caliber fan experience it isn't anything like what football necessarily is in the lower leagues so yeah really expensive for a season ticket there next up number three we have Chelsea uh, of course at one point the richest club in the Premier League owned by Roman Abramovich £1,250 so those three clubs are the, the three most expensive they're all London clubs which of course does affect the cost of property taxes and things like that so they are more expensive to run than a lot of the other clubs on a sort of bricks and mortar level next up under a thousand manchester united of course no surprise that they're expensive they are a, a titan of english football and i think still the most supported by foreigners around the world if you, yeah anywhere in the world you will see a man united fan wearing maybe not a legitimate shirt um, but it is well supported the top three are all london teams and obviously mm-hmm. people in London have a, well, there's more opportunity to earn higher amounts of money. I just, I just wonder, like, who, who affords, who can afford to pay that? How much debt do you get into? Is it, is it just reflective of their fan base being higher earners? Or is it, like, I, I just wonder, I just wonder how, who's got that, like, I mean, chunk that's of cash. part of it. But, I mean, the, the, as, as you've already mentioned, the Premier League is a tourist draw as well. It doesn't matter which club it is. If there's a game on, people are going to go, oh, we can go to a Premier League game, which I think happens more in England than it does in other nations. Of course, Germany is is a massive draw. And at any Bayern game, there will be thousands of people who are not going to ever go to a game again. It is part of that experience of coming here. Of course, this is the argument. And this is a two-sided coin because a lot of fans have moved away uh, from going to Premier League games because it is unaffordable. Or it is then your only sort of luxury you can't go to the cinema if you're going to spurs on the weekend and so we are seeing a slightly 
raised interest in lower league football which is really really good news in many ways because teams outside of the top two or three leagues in England have been struggling for years and fan ticket sale revenue is a significant thing and can keep a club Mm. alive Uh, so that's the sort of the silver lining on this that people are more interested in local teams playing at lower level but the experience of going to a lower league stadium being able to drink a beer and watch a game of football is something that doesn't exist in the Premier League these days and it's something that Germany does so beautifully yeah well I guess that's the call to talk about the Bundesliga so I think by the way we've set it up everyone's probably clear that the prices of the average Bundesliga season ticket are incredibly cheap by comparison. In, in the 2019-2020 season, the most expensive season ticket was €950, Euros, which is already like the price of... Man United. The most expensive ticket to be found it was at... Mines Null Funf had the most expensive uh, seats at €950. Euros. And the, but the standing section was €179. Euros. And that's I think, is a fundamental difference. You have standing yeah. sections in German stadiums, which for my money is the better football experience. So the standing section is, was one of the most attractive things about German football for me, but it also mm. means that ticket prices are at the, the cheapest end because you're not having to sit down. It's not like seen as a luxury or anything like that. The cheapest season ticket to be found is actually unsurprisingly at Union Berlin. Or Union yeah. Berlin. Their most expensive season ticket was 680 euros. The most expensive standing section, weirdly, was at SC Paderborn. It's 225 euros. Like, how good is their standing section, do you reckon? Do they have, like, pa- padded, padded back rails and stuff like that? I think you get, like, you get a beer delivered to the station. Like, you push a little button and then someone comes and pays like, beer on your face. I'd pay yeah. for that. Sprays it directly into your mouth from a hose. Just yeah. a big hose. Of <laughs> the Paderborn hoseman is here. Yeah. <laughs> what do you get for that football experience? Because I know in a British stadium or an English stadium, what you're generally going to find is a plastic seat. This is for your basic package. Plastic seat, expensive, crappy beer, and probably some kind of hamburger that's mm. overpriced. Mars bars are £2, that kind of thing. And we're talking seats that are built for people who are not tall. Uh, so we're we're both <laughs> exactly nine stacked in, like. and a seat <laughs> yeah, at these stadiums is a challenge. Like you will be like rammed into hey, the yeah. back of it to avoid your knees going into the person in front of you. I have to say yeah. rugby is worse for this. A lot of rugby stadiums in England are even smaller with their seating. It's disgraceful. Um, but I, I digress. I mean, the standing experience is something that has been gone from England for a long, long time because of a few football disasters Hillsborough to name one and it's something that's been talked about often and bringing back safe standing and, and, and Tottenham as I say have just built their new stadium with that in mind you could actually have standing sections I think the fear of what might happen mm. is one of the reasons but yeah so I mean your experience of German football then compared to uncomfortable plastic seats the last time I took a seat uh, at a game was actually uh, Nuremberg against Schalke Uh, when both teams were still in the Bundesliga, which is not the case today, unfortunately. Um, But it was in January at the start of the second half of the season in the Rookrunde, as it's called here. And it was so cold uh, in the Nuremberg Stadium, in the Max Morlock Stadium. And because I was in a seat, you, you get colder because you're not able to really move around in the same way. So that's one big benefit I found from standing in the cold winter months even though Germany does take a break over the coldest period of the year. Um, standing mm. is, is is better for temperature. 
But the stadium I've gone to the most uh, and had the best experiences at is uh, Schalke. Uh, because, as previously mentioned, my wife and all her family are, are big Schalke fans. They come from the Gelsenkirchen region. It is very much part of the identity of her family. And a cousin of hers, Toby, who is an amazing lad, I don't know if he'll be listening to this or not, um, he is part of one of the Ultras groups at Schalke called Schalke Hardcore. And through that, I've had some really, really authentic experiences with the Ultras. It's not something that's as easy to do when you are not part of that community. We have some friends here who are club fans, Nuremberg fans, who have, over time, become part of that community and but it is something that you can't just turn up and be like mm. i'm an ultra now uh, i can get, stand with you guys um you do have to sort of earn your chops uh, along the way like there are things that happen that are quite surprising why people start smoking weed very openly in front of stewards <laughs> that was something i'd never seen uh, in english football um there's a lot more alcohol than i'd experienced at a premier league game well you can drink in the stands can't you people come around and sell your beers in the stands drink and smoke back in the day as well it was um it was a pub environment and there just happened to be a football game going on in front of you. The sense of community, the singing of songs, the chanting, it felt a lot more authentic. And because you're, especially if you're in the standing section, you only have to look over and see people sat down who were just like politely clapping in comparison. And it gives you a feeling of integrity, of being like a real hardcore fan. That is something that I didn't anticipate. Even my very first game here in Germany, we were lucky to go and see uh, Bayern against Fiorentina back in 2002 at the old Olympic Stadium, the old Olympic Stadium, mm. which is like a, a bowl that like drops into the earth and you really feel like you're standing over this, this team. And it was the first time where I was like, I can smoke and drink here. I was 17 and I was allowed to do that. It's like, this is, I love Germany. This is amazing. And that's part of the football experience. And it goes back to talking about how the prices and who can pay for like such expensive tickets because your tickets this like 2,000 or 950 euros for a season ticket which is one expense, but then you've got travel. The experience of the match day, for certainly for a British fan, does involve mm -hmm. drinking, as it does in Germany. I think it involves drinking, probably more drinking in Britain. But the, one of the things I loved was being able to smoke and drink in a stadium. I don't smoke anymore. The, now it's just being able to mm. have a pint in a stadium and watch football. That's quite a, a nice experience because yeah. it's all part of part and parcel of what I feel is the match day experience is a few beers with your mates. You mentioned travel there and that's a really interesting point because if if you want to go to one of the London clubs and you go to a hotel in London for, for your stay, you got to pay, of course, uh, to use public transport to get to a stadium or a taxi or whatever whatever level you're rolling at, maybe stretch limo if you're going to see Chelsea. But here in Germany, the majority of clubs, if you buy uh, a ticket, then the transport to the game is included and you have a window yeah. either side of it. So your, your, your travel is included in the cost of the ticket, which is really fantastic. I mean, a day ticket here in Nuremberg yeah. is, is under 10 euros, but still that's, that's 10 euros that you're saving. You talked about alcohol as well. I mean, the cost of a beer in a, in a Bundesliga stadium is exactly pretty much the same as it is outside of the stadium. There's maybe a 5%, 10% difference, but it isn't daylight robbery. The fact that you don't serve beer and you can't drink mm. a beer in, the, in your seat in a British stadium, you have to drink a beer out, you have to go down into the concourse and stand at a bar. I think that does also, it's kind of the last orders yeah. effect. People drink more and because they can't access it in the stadium yeah. when they're sitting down whereas I feel like it's quite even-handed I haven't seen a vast amount of drunkenness at 
German football matches. I've seen some pretty chaotic scenes, but not to the scale I've seen, certainly when I've gone to Newcastle or when I used to watch a lot of Scottish football. I've seen more chaotic scenes in those environments, often alcohol fueled. Mm. But yeah, so like we're talking about the the stadiums and talking about the experience. Let's have a quick look at some of the uh, some of the stadiums that you might encounter if you travel to watch football in Germany. I mean, there are some really really good ones here, world famous ones. Um, and so we just got a list here from 90minutes.com. and so they're down a top ten, but we're just going to do top five for time. And the number five mm-hmm. one is is a I hadn't thought of it. I've never been to it, and maybe I will now. Uh, it's the Fritz Walter Stadion, uh, which is the home stadium for Kaiserslautern. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty surprising shout. Kaiserslautern is not necessarily the first club you think of for having a great stadium, and they're in the the third division. And the stadium is named after a club hero, as is often the case here in Germany. Uh, and of course, he was a, a World Cup winner. Uh, Fritz Walter holds fifty thousand people. Uh, which isn't big shakes, like that's not a huge number, but it still has 50,000 in the third tier, which is pretty incredible, that kind of devotion to the club. A lot of modern stadiums, of course, are criticised for being sort of glass enigmas of buildings, and it's beautifully old school. It's it's kind of a unique old school stadium with huge stands. It does look impressive. It's, there's something classic about it, certainly. It does look, there's some pictures of it that look at, make it look like some kind mm-hmm. of Blade Runner prison or something like that. It's really impressive, but yeah, it's really cool. And num- number four, we've got the Borussia Park, the stadium of Borussia Mönchengladbach. Boo! Oh no, sorry, I've got the wrong Borussia. <laughs> Borussia and you just said Borussia and went off on one, didn't you? It, it holds 54,000 fans and is uh, apparently one of the, the best atmospheres in the whole of Europe, not just in the Bundesliga or in the but the leagues it's again it's got it's a very classic design it's got the substructure or the sort of exoskeleton type thing around the sides mm-hmm. of it and it lights up green that seems to be a common theme it's very color coordinated and it is it's a glorious thing at, at night it's, it's a beautiful stadium at night but these sort of wire frames come off the the sides of it like spider legs mm-hmm. but yeah it looks it looks really a really nice stadium it does have arachnid qualities, for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, totally arachnid qualities. Okay, so the next one uh, we have is number three. I've already mentioned it, and I'm happy I get to talk about it again. It is the Veltins Arena, uh, the arena of Schalke, the home of Schalke 04. Holds 62,000 people, and it hosted the 2004 Champions League final. Uh, so it does have integrity. It really does look incredible, uh, especially on the inside. It has a massive four-way screen hanging from the roof in the middle of the pitch where the, the scores are displayed. Yeah, yeah. I remember it from the 2006 so World Cup. It's, it's really, was really marvelling cool. over it. Yeah. Uh, it has a retractable roof as well, which is always a pretty baller move, mm-hmm. and a retractable pitch. Uh, so everything's retractable. <laughs> the thing that I love most about it, really, is the newly updated tunnel, uh, which I've I, I've shared, I think, a picture with, before with you, Nick. Yeah, because, of course, yeah. Gelsenkirk and Schalke uh, has a very strong connection to the mining industry. Most people who are fans of Schalke have someone in their distant family or, or, or near family that were involved in that industry. And so when they redesigned the, the tunnel uh, three years ago now, I think, they designed it to look like a mine shaft. Uh, so the walls look like uh, sort of picked coal uh, with this beautiful royal blue carpet on the bottom. It's a, a beautifully intimidating thing. Unfortunately, Schalke are not doing very well at the moment on the pitch. No, that tunnel isn't as intimidating as it could be. Yeah, hopefully they can return to the, to the glory days of 
Klaus Jan Huntelaar, Raul, uh, and then big ballers um, and get back into the to the Bundesliga. It'll be good to see. The next on our list we have at number two, and uh, not surprisingly. The Allianz Arena, which holds 75,000 and is probably one of the most famous stadiums, if not the most famous stadium in Germany. It's probably one that most people have heard of. Certainly during the European Championships, it became a bone of contention because it wanted to show solidarity with the LGBTQ community by lighting Mm -hmm. up the stadium in the the rainbow colours and was prevented from doing that by UEFA. But um, yeah, the, the stadium lights up. I think originally it was intended... Because I'm not sure if 1860 Munich still share the stadium. I think they do, but Bayern bought out the rights. So 1860 just used the space, as it were, but they don't get mm-hmm. any of the money for it, which is a bit of a, a shame for a team like that. But it, it was certainly was traditional in the past that when Bayern were playing at home, it, lit, it was lit up red. And mm-hmm. when 1860 Munich were playing at home, it would light up blue. But it has obviously different lightning effects and you'll drive past it on a, on a night and you'll see it sort of shining on the horizon. But it is a beautiful stadium. It's a, a very, very symmetrical. That's something I like about ev- most mm-hmm. things, but the symmetry of it's really nice. And it looks like a, a fun place to watch a game of football. I've not had a chance to sit in the Allianz yet, but here's hoping. I mean, as you say, when you drive past it at night, it really is a beacon to Bayerish uh, ballers. It is. It's, oh, for sure. It's, it's a beautiful thing. For sure. Yeah. Very impressive. It's just a shame that it's filled with Bayern fans. <laughs> <laughs> and now we come to number one, and I'm, I'm leaving this for Simon. I think there's some poetic justice. Yeah, I fucked up my plan. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I don't want to talk about I it. Knew, I knew what was coming. So <laughs> tell us, Simon, what's the number one stadium in Germany? So in the opinion, in the opinion of 90minutes.com and a few other people, I guess, the number one is the Signal Laduna Park or the Westfalenstadion. The, sorry, the Westfalenstadion. And this is, of course, the home of, uh, yeah, Borussia Dortmund. Way Dortmund! Woo! Boom and hiss to all their Just so you know, listener, Um, uh, Dortmund are Schalke's mortal enemies. (laughs) So, like I said, there is some justice in the fact that Simon now has to tell us how wonderful their stadium looks. I'm going to praise the structure and nothing else. (laughs) It is a massive stadium, 81,000 fans uh, in that, which is the largest in Germany uh, by quite some distance. And anyone that's watched a Dortmund game or anyone that has a love of, of European football will have this on their list of places they want to go, primarily because of the Sud Tribuna, uh, the South Bank stand, which hosts the what they call the Yellow Wall. This is the home of the Ultras, balaclava-cladden, yellow and black blazoned bumblebee baller boys. And that's 24,454 just in the south stand in the south wall and it is an incredible thing to see uh, on tv especially i'm never going there in real life never unless <laughs> unless it's like england against someone in the euros then i'll do it but i'm not going to a bundesliga game with Dortmund. it's the angle of the stand as, mm-hmm. as well that does it and it's certainly for the the yellow wall that angle, it almost looks precarious. It does look steep. At the top, you might like roll all the way down, you know, but it creates this such a fantastic image. And I think the stadium, again, it has the has this sort of exoskeleton on the corners, these sort of legs uh, pointing down. And it, it, it just looks, it looks proper. That's what I think about, and as well the scale of it as well. Like all the all the scaffolding on the interior is is, is painted Dortmund yellow, and mm-hmm. just everything like the black and yellow. There's no denying it. It is a, a killer 
colour combo. Yeah, yeah. It's so striking. Looks really powerful. So, yeah, I mean, credit where it's due. They do have the best stadium. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the best in Europe. It's one of the best in the world, yeah, yeah, I'd say. Easily, um, easily. Any real football devotee of stadiums is definitely in their top 10 they want to visit. No question about that whatsoever. So, yeah, hopefully at some point, Germany will get another Euros and I can finally go to it. <laughs> what Simon doesn't know is I've got him tickets to the Signal Iduna Park for uh, next next year and we're gonna we're gonna go on a trip and I'm gonna force him to stare at the yellow wall until his eyes bleed. <laughs> I'll wear a balaclava. <laughs> well apparently they're freely available, so we'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> As you may well know, I spent a few years living in in Portland, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, on the west coast of the US of A. I loved it. It's an incredible place. And Portland, Oregon is a really friendly, really alternative city. It's just glorious. I cannot recommend it enough. (laughs) One of the things that happened just before I moved to Portland, Oregon, was that cannabis, recreational cannabis, was legalized. And this, of course was an interesting time in the history of Oregon and this industry as a whole. Medical cannabis has been a regulated thing in many, many states across the US for many, many years. But what we're seeing now in places like Oregon is that medical marijuana on its own has slowly faded out um, because recreational cannabis provides tax revenues. We have seen years of places like Oregon, Colorado, California, and a few others have done successful rollouts of recreational cannabis, produced a large amount of tax revenues, as well as creating whole new job sectors that have been brought in from the black market. And that brings us to Germany, because this is, for the first time, really, a possibility here in Germany. It's very surprising. It is. It's a bit... You mentioned it a while ago, and I couldn't really believe it. We've got an article here from Deutsche Welle that's going to sort of guide us through it a little bit and give us some some rolling data. We've mentioned before that Germany is still going through negotiations about what format the government is going to take, Mm -hmm. but drug legalisation is, for the first time, it's going to be an issue on the political agenda that isn't just going to be swept under the Mm -hmm. carpet. For example, the the FDP, uh, the Free Democrats, who are very, very focused on civil liberties... Uh, They've called for the limited and legal sale to adults of, quote, cannabis for leisure consumption, which does sound pretty leisurely. (laughs) Of course, they know that this opens the door for a safer environment. More on that later. But also, business is going to do very well out of this if it does become a legal thing. So the FDP uh, is even looking to turn the phrase cannabis made in Germany into a a lucrative export product so this made in germany thing could go beyond Mm. white goods and and fancy sports cars an interesting possible future for germany there the the green party especially have been quite open about their pro legalization stance Mm -hmm. and it's combined with the free democrats who obviously are coming from a business friendly Mm -hmm. perspective but civil liberties perspective i think more of a business friendly perspective i think they look at and it's the argument I've kind of made, the look at the industry in the US, how much money it brings in and how much extra revenue it's yeah. created just from this simple process of legalization and, and making it more accessible and taxing it. And, and I think that's an obvious one. The SPD seem to be the, the, the group that are dragging their heels slightly. They're still a little too traditional mm. in their own perspective in comparison to the other parties. But even they are still, they're, they're still in that 
left of center mm. area where this discussion's kind of happening. It's a big shift. It's a big shift in attitude. And it's been a big shift over the last mm. 10 years, certainly. It's becoming more noticeable that people are generally using it. I think there's some stat that I saw said that one in five people were, were smoking weed in, in, in Germany. It's slowly moving towards a point where we might have a an adult conversation about how we deal with... Yeah. Deal, deal with at least some of the illegal substances. The article here gives us that adults, uh, 15 to 64, a third have used it once in their lifetime, and adults 15 to 34, uh, 17%. Uh, have used it at least once in the last year and of course that number is always low because not everyone is willing to admit in a survey yeah, to having course. used drugs because there are still very strict penalties especially down in Bayern which has it, the strongest yeah laws exactly on it. some of the most restrictive <laughs> drug drug laws in in Germany are found in obviously the most conservative mm. state which is happens to be the state that we yeah. live in the data and the information you have about usage versus and sort of the the, the health benefits or effects versus the tax mm. revenue versus the sort of moral discussion the moral discussion slowly being eroded by the realities the, of it. the moral argument is is it doesn't really mm. work anymore the only way that you can really argue to that cannabis shouldn't be legalized is on a health perspective i think and this is one of the interesting shifts we've seen in the last 10 years as you said now it's not just people who want to smoke weed who are like legalize cannabis and like go into marches and stuff we're seeing lawyers prosecutors criminologists police officers yeah, social yeah. workers all questioning the reasoning and the logic behind these prohibitionist uh, policies a lot of people face jail for mm -hmm. a small amount of cannabis we've seen this mm -hmm. not work elsewhere why would it work here and so now politicians are now in the face of this asking whether the, the, the police and the state prosecutors are the right instruments to protect the health of the people as long as users are forced to use the black market there is an inherent risk there attached to the user and we are seeing more and more incidents where that is a real issue it wasn't regulated it's it's what happens with illegal drugs right you can't you're not, there's no way of regulating it and knowing what's in it the problem with the debate is personally and i think it's important now that that germany's actually having a serious discussion is it can tend to be dominated by by people who are like just caners, mm. you know, and the sort of Bob Marley poster <laughs> image, and everyone's got dreadlocks. And I think actually we need to have the health benefits have been have been known for a very long time, and the recreational use of it has been studied, I think, a lot more over the last few years with uh, legalization in America. But the uh, Berlin Health Association, mm -hmm. uh, the Berliner Arztkammer, um, came out recently and talked about what the health implications of legalization and they advocate that people certainly shouldn't be using it under the mm -hmm. age of 20 uh, because of brain development issues which i think again have been known we've known this information for at least yeah. a decade but one of the interesting things is peter bobbert who's the president president of the arztikema in berlin said man darf cannabis nicht bagatellisieren doch eine demonisierung hilft auch keinem mm -hmm which is roughly translated as like there's implications or concerns about the legalization of cannabis and it shouldn't be trivialized, but you can't demonize it either. And of course, there are risks to heavy cannabis use and the stronger the cannabis, the more risk there is attached to it. And this is one of the things that has been really, really good about the legalization of recreational cannabis along the West Coast and many states in the US. A person can go into a shop and be advised on what they're buying mm -hmm. based on their needs. When you leave that shop, 
having been advised or having chosen from a, 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 lo- a big menu, you will be able to scan mm. a barcode on the product you buy and you will know exactly who grew it, when it was grown, where it has come from. That's the thing that uh, I find interesting is, should it happen, what kind of culture will develop around it? Because my first experience of recreational use of cannabis was in Amsterdam and it's got a very particular culture there they do have that advice but I think a lot of people certainly tourists and and it's one of the things they've discussed in Amsterdam is whether they want to allow tourists to smoke mm-hmm. cannabis because it causes problems. I'm sure it's just having loads of tourists baked walking around, <laughs> falling the in canals. Yeah, yeah. What my experience there was, it was a little bit seedy, but also you could speak to the people and they'd give you a lot of advice if you bothered your ass to mm. speak to them. A lot of people would just turn up and buy the strongest weed, smoke it, be obliterated. Yeah. It's like going to a bar and ordering six of the strongest drinks and then shooting them. It's like crazy talk, mm. you know. It's total madness Uh, whereas in portland or at least in america it felt like going to walmart (laughs) that was my experience i went in and it felt very clean and very not medicinal but it was like yeah it just felt very comfortable and the people were quite nice and the everyone seemed to it was just an interesting experience seeing it but also the experience in portland was like in in amsterdam you can smoke on the street Mm mm-hmm in Portland, that was frowned upon. But it's illegal. You're not of, allowed to smoke in public yeah, spaces Yeah, yeah, you weren't like meant to sort of smoke in public. And I wonder if we'll get something like that in Germany or whether it'll be like Amsterdam or some middle path that hasn't been thought about yet. Maybe there'll be like cafes come, uh, come about. I don't know if that's the case. It seems that the most likely solution is going to actually be the utilisation of the pharmacy industry. And there was an interview right. last week where the head of a group of pharmacies came out and said that they already have the infrastructure in place and are ready to step up and, and do that to become the distribution centre. It would be introduced in a, in a similar way to how medical was, where you have to qualify, get a card, yeah. go to your doctor, get checked if you're suitable for this service. And then over the years, it would shift, I, I imagine, similar to what the American model is. That would make sense, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, that there is still opportunity for that to be taken advantage of. There are lots of stories in California yeah. of doctors with no shoes on being like, just tell me you're tired yeah, here's a and card. I'll give you this. Um, yeah. I don't see it being like that no. here, to be perfectly no. honest, no. I imagine it would be a far more yeah. rigorous investigation of someone's anxiety. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's a first step, though, isn't yeah. it? And I think... It's heading that direction, and the fact the FDP are pushing for it, to, it sounds from what the FDP are saying, it's, it would be like you could go to a cafe or something like that. That's the way they're sort of making it sound as if it's a business opportunity. I mean, this is really the, the big incentive, is that take away the black market, you remove a lot of illegal money from from the system that's not taxable and so what we can do is look at the numbers from 2020 the tax revenue for these states so oregon is not a big state a population of just over four million so that's berlin plus a bit it's really not very huge um but the tax revenue of that was 133 million dollars imagine what you could do with that extra wedge like what things you could do with that i mean that's hospitals that's Mm -hmm. schools there's a lot of stuff that can be offset by that california of course the biggest sector for this, they raised a billion dollars mm-hmm. in marijuana tax revenues last year, mm-hmm. which is, it's just insane. That is so much money. And this is only paid by recreational users. If you qualify for medical and go down the medical route, which is becoming harder in some of these states, you pay no tax. 
Um, so this is a purely luxury tax. For me, certainly, watching how Germany creates its own culture, if it legalises, that'll be really, really interesting to see how that develops. Mm-hmm. It's certainly some of it's a topic we'll return back to, I'm sure, as, as things develop, because it is very much... We're still waiting for a German government to be formed to even make the decisions about these these new laws and new regulations. But for those people who have been wanting legalisation, this is the most or the closest to that reality becoming part of daily lives than at any point in history. But let's see. Let's see how modern this new government's going to be. Or is it going to be yeah. another one of those promise, promise lots and deliver very little? I hope it's not that, but we'll see. Indeed. Servus Leute, a big thank you to Tenyet, our ultras, Karen and Sigmar, who retweeted the show last week. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute to really help us out. Retweet us, share a link or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome, all lowercase, on Twitter or Instagram. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at DecadesFromHome and you can tweet me at 40%German. You can also get us on 40%German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40percentgerman.com. Weekly articles weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thank you and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss.